Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast. On the left. (laughs) That's when the cannibalism started. What was that? Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the last podcast on the left. Ben hanging out with Marcus and Henry. Hi. Yeah. Today's episode, <laughs> totally normal, guys. No way are you nervous. Today's episode, we are honored to have a true legend in podcasting. Uh, he's a genius, uh, a wonderful podcaster, and just a wonderful man, Dan Carlin from Hardcore History. Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. You guys, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. You look great. <laughs> you look good. Well, same to you guys. Everybody looks good. <laughs> and the lies continue. The beauty of radio. That's right. All right. So, Dan, I'm going to jump right into it with the questions because I got a million questions I've been wanting to ask you for forever. So I've been listening uh, recently to, you know, some of the classic episodes and some of the newer episodes. And, and you said in one of your recent episodes that you've been told that you are addicted to context when it comes to telling a story. And I've also been told that I'm addicted to context by both our listeners and by my co-hosts. So my I've been quest- told I'm addicted to Michelob Ultra. That's uh-huh. the doctor's opinion. <laughs> yes. So my question, Dan, why are all of them wrong? And we are not addicted to context and that it is uh, I, I absolutely we, necessary. No, I think I think we're addicted to context. I think the problem is, is that more other people should be addicted to context because so much of what goes on in our world right now is stuff taken out of context. Mm-hmm. And that's and, and without that context, it's easy to misapply facts and all sorts of things. I mean, reading any news story today, I keep thinking, OK, the first thing I need to do to understand this news story is go do more research on you know, everything connected to the news story so that the facts given to me and the impressions and everything makes sense. It's like why history is important. I had a professor say once that it's like watching a soap opera and without knowing what happened earlier in the soap opera, there's no way to understand the episode that you're currently viewing. And that's context, right? So being addicted to context is just means trying to figure out what happened to get you to the point where you're, you know, currently at. So I I do want to ask, so when does the context begin. Yes, that's and the when problem. Is it, yes, because <laughs> right. eventually it becomes like turtles and turtles all the way down. And we tried to do it because with last podcast and left, we tried to now, we stole it from you. We tried to yes. put it, land the subject in a context so that people can understand. But again, how far back do you go? 
I know. That's a good question. Because you're back in the Jurassic at a certain point. Yes. Right. I, I was yes. just reading something for the show I'm working on right now. And it's one of those um, chronicles written in the Middle Ages. And it's supposed to talk about the time period it's written about. But it starts with the biblical flood with Noah. <laughs> so they were addicted to context back then, too. That's awesome. And so you got your diploma from Prager U, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, I didn't. So no, no Prager diploma. Thank God. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess to that point of what you're working on now, like to what extent, like, cause you've done, you know, a huge series on like ancient Rome and Genghis Khan. I'm going with your pronunciation. Nice. That's the uh, right pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> One in a row for me. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Uh, but to what extent when you're studying this ancient stuff, you know, or like medieval stuff, like how do you suss out what to trust and what not to trust? Um, usually I trust other people. So, uh, uh, when you are, and like I would say, I'm a fan of history, not a historian. And so that requires you to trust other people. The problem with trusting historians is that they often disagree with each other. And that was something that we got into early on in the podcast where we inadvertently got someone's chocolate in my peanut butter and tried and, and figured out that the audience actually likes hearing the different opinions that the different historians have. And so that's kind of what we do. And that's the way we provide context also is that we'll say, well, on this issue, this particular guy feels this way. This right. other lady who's an expert on the subject feels this way. And you start to try to help the audience understand the controversy, even if we don't always pick sides. So a lot of our shows, you'll hear me give multiple potential interpretations or give a disclaimer and say, this might be true. I'm just warning you to take it with a grain of salt, though, because some people disagree. And sometimes I'll use their names and sometimes right. I won't. It just depends. Can I ask a dumb question? When Please. you when you're like not reading history, what do you read? Like, do oh. what, what is the stuff that you're into that's not work? Because I'm looking for ideas. <laughs> well, first of all, it, it it's more that I turn my my private enjoyments into work because this yep. was stuff I read anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, I do read uh, uh, some stuff for fun, but it's almost all nonfiction. And wow. like an idiot, the fiction that I do read, it's like three or four books and then I just reread them all the time. Yeah, I so, know exactly <laughs> what you're is, Isn't that terrible? Like you could be discovering a brand new fictional work, but Anything. do I know? I no. just reread the same one. I just All I do, I just reread The Dark Tower again. I've been trying yeah. to get, yeah. I, want, I would love a new book. Anything else? Buddy, if you if you love it, stick with it. So that's interesting when it comes to historians. How do you decide who to trust and who not to then? Because obviously, even in, in modern era, you can talk with some economists who are like, Reagan was great. Others say accurately, trickle down economics didn't fucking work, and that's why we have no middle class. So how do you trust that these historians aren't spinning in their own right? Well, usually there's a major consensus on certain things. So you'll say 80% of historians will say this. And then sometimes we'll like to throw the, a member of the 20% in there just to, to give an alternative view. But there are sure. some historians that are completely off the map. I mean, there's one Russian guy and I should really look up his name. Cause this is like the third time this month I've mentioned him without looking up the name, but he, <laughs> he contends that the entire dating system that everyone else adheres to is completely wrong. These are my right? favorite. Who cares? Can't we just agree that it doesn't really matter? Well, actually, it's fascinating. His, his theory, whether it's true or not, is fascinating because it shows how thin the reads are that certain potential moments that that dating rests upon might be. So even if he's wrong, it's fascinating to look and go, 
oh, I didn't realize that this date here is crucial for 900 other dates to be right, right? In other words, they sort of use it as a marker that then, you know, a lot of other things hinge on. Um, Then, of course, you know, you get these historians, uh, uh, there are ones who deny the Holocaust. I mean, there's, and, and, and they are, some of these guys are legit historians. They're just so far out in left field, no one else believes them. So sometimes you have to make a determination whether or not someone's so far off the map that bringing them into the discussion is just confusing and wrong mm-hmm. or whether or not what they're bringing to the table adds some sort of interesting angle that the audience would find useful. And that's a judgment mm. call. And I'm sure yeah. I get it wrong sometimes. No, but that's that's why you're the curator. I know that's I've been trying to call me the curator. Sounds <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I, a new serial killer. I've been trying to get us to do an episode. A Batman villain. Yeah. The curator. the curator. What does he do? He organizes your bookshelf. Yeah, right. I that's take right. your talents and I turn them into mine. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I like ha- bookworm on the old Batman, remember? Yeah. <laughs> There's a scary criminal. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I keep trying to get us to do an episode that is about like the fact that like what if it's like 300 years later than they think it is or 300 years earlier than they think it is you know like the idea of this the dating may be off and then you know we put together all this research and like eventually we're like so what like we get to the very end and we're like well so okay so it's 20 it's 23 23 congrats well i mean one of the uh, missing time mm -hmm. arguments that that i've heard i mean it does actually does it speaks towards a larger history you know it speaks towards like the history of the christian church because dan i don't know if you're talking about the same theory that i've heard about is that you know that this entire chunk of time was like moved forward or moved backwards in order to make the christian church more powerful Mm. in order to kind of take these pagan rituals and turn them into christian rituals by saying oh that was that happened so long long ago or that happened just you know a couple hundred years ago that they've been screwing around with time just to further their own interests i think the russian guy i'm thinking of actually thinks that certain events that we think happened a long time apart from each other actually happened at the same time and are sort of like double counted by historians. <laughs> oh. But 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 let's remember that dating itself is relatively arbitrary, right? In other yeah. words, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you look at the Hebrew dating system, it, it's a completely different dating system, right? I mean, in other words, if you look at the medieval stuff, a lot of times it won't even try to have dates. What they'll do is they'll say, okay, this king reigned here and then 23 years later he dies in the next. So they'll date it based on other data points rather than saying this many years since ground zero, you know, where we're calling. And that's why the, the, what you're talking about is like the, the ADBC system, right? Mm -hmm. That's just one sort of system, right? The Hebrew one, I mean, we're in, we're in multi-thousand years somewhere. So, so it's all sort of relative and all that matters is once you sort of affix things that happen to your timeline. So whatever year you call this doesn't matter, but you could say, oh, this is when the emperor Augustus, you know, died. And then you date things based on that. And then everything has to sort of fit on the timeline in place. But yeah. the year you sort of decide, well, that seems a little bit like, okay, you, you sort of make that part up and then everything sort of fits on the timeline based on, well, 23 years after Augustus yeah. died, this happened. And, and so you start placing things on the, on the linear timeline, if that makes nice sense. Thing about me, I'm not tethered to history, so Augustus died eating a bunch of cake. <laughs> whenever no whenever you wanted die. him to. That's yeah, right. who cares? <laughs> uh, so is the my YouTube videos I was watching saying about the the uh, the mysterious happenings of 9/11 across history? Is it real? <laughs> <laughs> 
I can't comment intelligently on that because that sounds like fiction. And I just told you, I don't even pay attention to fiction very much. <laughs> well, did. That was kind of my, my one of my base questions here is you say you're a fan of history. Why? You know, my mother's theory on this, and she's not she's not grounded in reality on every part of the subject. She thinks it's past life stuff. She thinks I'm, mm. I, you know, I have all this stuff from past lives, and that's why I, at three years old, well, then and reading, you're cheating. Well, <laughs> if you lived all the life, that's not history. Then that's just a bio. That's a rerun. I, I think that's fiction too, for for the record. But I mean, she, she was trying to explain how this four year old kids reading Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Uh, and, and, how do you, and how do you and how do you explain that to friends at cocktail parties? Exactly. Right? Like, well, he's either going to be super smart or we have a problem. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I think that we have a problem thing was was pretty much the uh, standard answer until I graduated college. So, <laughs> well, I mean, Dan, when it comes to being like a curator, you know, when you have these massive stories like you know Supernova in the East, Blueprint for Armageddon, you know, Ghosts of the Ostfront, like when you're setting out and you're planning out these stories like are you trying to make a point with these stories or are you just kind of giving a point of view of what happened throughout these you know massive global events well i don't for us anyway we weren't trying to simply just recount a bunch of facts you know we we'd like to have we like to think that there's an artistic element to this yeah. and for the, for that to be the case there's got to be something that we're adding Otherwise, why wouldn't you just go get the books that we're using for our research, right? Mm -hmm. And that we put on our website, because those are by reputable historians and you can trust them <laughs> yes. you know, much, much better than you can. So what are we bringing to the table? Uh, we have in-house names that we use for a lot of this stuff. And you guys probably do, too. You develop terms to to refer to things that you use in, in your work. Uh, and we call it the spine. Right. So every mm -hmm. show kind of has usually a major spine and maybe a couple minor spines that are sort of a throughput idea that. If, if you think about, you know, there's an old line that history is philosophy taught by example. And we mm. try to keep a sort of a philosophical throughput. So like in the in the show that we did on nuclear weapons, the throughput question was sort of whether or not humankind is ever going to, if we haven't already, develop a weapon system that is so powerful, we ourselves can't figure out how to exist with it, right? Will mm. mankind ever become... Um, unable to handle the power of its own weapon systems. And the throughput idea was kind of that mixed with sort of the question about whether or not if you had a gun, I think we said we phrased it this way, if you had a gun pointed at your head throughout your entire life, meaning nuclear weapons, right? There was a generation that, yeah. that, did, that grew up without nuclear weapons and then had nuclear weapons and they mm -hmm. were acutely aware of the nuclear threat. But people born when nuclear weapons already existed, are like people born with a gun put to their head. Do you do you even notice it anymore? So those were those that was part of an intertwining spine, uh, questioning whether or not if mankind hasn't gotten to the point yet, will we ever get to the point? Because you assume technology is always going to advance and we're going to invent mm -hmm. more and oh, better yeah. powerful weapons. Uh, can we handle the power of our weapon system? And this is where we included stuff like the the think tanks that were created after nuclear weapons came to the fore where you got the smartest people in the world on the subject, put them in a room together and then had them try to figure out how mankind exists with these weapons that can destroy mankind. And so it's mm -hmm. it's part of a fascinating tale that's a subtext of the nuclear question. And that's that's something that um I just saw um Oppenheimer the other night. And when I yeah. when I saw the movie, all I was thinking of is, man, I felt like they really missed an opportunity 
to get into that side of the question, because here are these people taking us into a brand new era of weapon power. And you have to ask the question then about, you know, how do you then, you know, what, what's the old line? There was a, a line, I think it was Bertrand Russell or one of those philosophers was talking about, you know, he said, uh, it, it's, you can expect mankind to walk on a tightrope, you know, for, you know, an hour or two or a day or a week, but we're committed to walking on this tightrope of not blowing ourselves up forevermore forever right? Right. And, wow. and so and so those are the kind of questions that we wove into the the story about the early years of nuclear war and nuclear nuclear war but nuclear development and that's an example of one of the spines major and minor that we try to throw into these shows that makes it interesting for us and and that adds something that we hope makes it worth listening to instead of just picking up the history books. Does that make sense? Yes. Of course. Any, any insight on the snacks in these think tanks? Because <laughs> I figure this would be a cracker and cheese club. Unbelievable. <laughs> I think it's I think it's sardines and cigars myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it smells like it. Yeah. Ooh, it smells like the oh, end yeah. of the world. From your My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Jackie Zabrowski. She shops all year thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it, but guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown. All right, give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the Aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do. And the memories keep cycling and I get emotional. And we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy. And that is not sad. That is celebratory. So you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse pics over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Ah, Jules. Oh, Jules. Jules. 
make a wife smile today. The road to getting engaged can be long and full of memories and pitfalls and landmines. Or it can be short and thrilling, like a roller coaster on the way to the police department. But the road to finding the perfect engagement ring is a straightforward path every time. All you've got to do is head over to BlueNile.com and they're going to ship them rocks straight to your wife's new fingers. On BlueNile.com, you can create a bigger, more brilliant piece than you can imagine. At a price you won't find at a traditional jeweler, Blue Nile is the original online jeweler since 1999. That's present time to me. Their diamond price guarantee means that in most cases, they can meet or beat a competitor's price on a comparable diamond. I know when I got my wife a beautiful Blue Nile necklace, the first thing she did was, what did you do? But afterwards, she was so happy to have it, and she loved it, and she wore it when we went on vacation, and modern did everybody come around being like, where'd you get that piece, you beautiful woman? And I was like, stop talking to my wife. She's spoken for her. You can see it with the Blue Nile bling she's got on her. Right now, get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more with code LASTPODCAST at BlueNile.com. That's $50 off with code LASTPODCAST at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Do you think that we'll have the same comeuppance at some point about because our generation was the first ones to really like, you know, we came up in an age we were the last ones to come up in an age with no digital footprint. Right. Like we're all about we're 40 across the line. We went through a thing. We saw both worlds. And now we're kind of like the generations after us are are deeply ensconced in the Internet. I actually wonder if we're going to be having these same conversations about stuff like this, like and how it's affecting our society later on down Mm -hmm. the line after like. Because I don't know what it's doing to our brains. Like, it seems like it's kind of tearing us apart right. Like from the inside, not like the, how nuclear weapons would do it in a fancy, expensive explosion. No, I think about it all the time. The analog generation, right? The people, the pe- I always describe it to my kids who don't want to hear it. It's like me listening to my parents talk about, you know, when they had radio instead of television. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the analog generation and the generation that eventually had to decide someday we're going to learn how to operate that weird complicated tool known as a computer i remember looking forward to it going god i don't really want to have to learn you know ms mm-hmm. dos and how to deal with this computer mm-hmm. and everything but i'm going to have to for work so in other words the the generation that grew up in a in a pre-digital world and that has to then you know sort of bridge the gap and then these oh, yeah. other kids it's a little like what we just talked about being born with a gun to your head we were i born, think so right yeah we were born without the gun to our head and we we're acutely aware of the digital world whereas my my oldest daughter was born the year the iPhone was invented, I think. And, or, and I try to explain to her that this whole texting reality that is just, it's like concrete to you yes. is about as old as you are. Mm-hmm. Now, try to imagine how different the world was before that. And she can't she can't get her mind around it. And I think that's how human beings are hardwired. But yeah. because we existed in that world, we we're acutely aware of how different our childhood was, for example, than the way childhood will ever be again. And what's interesting is our childhood was more like the the way children experience life from our time to caveman time yeah. than it <laughs> will ever be again. Yeah, yeah. than it will ever be right. again. Well, I mean, to the it's point of, I mean, to the point of being like, a, you know, adapting to technology. I mean, you were one of the first people to use podcasts as a medium. Like you've been doing podcasting since what, 2005? Yeah. Yeah. And, to, wow. like, and so... 
why did you make the jump from terrestrial radio to podcasting? And did you ever think that podcasting would ultimately become like the top medium when it comes to broadcasting? It's so funny. I'm having dinner with the guy tomorrow night who first proposed that idea to me in 1994. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so it wasn't my idea at all. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was on the radio one day and I had a very contentious relationship with my audience. I always said I was the Martian in the day part uh, because, <laughs> because I was saddled between two right wing talkers uh, on commercial radio and I was a Martian. I still am a Martian. Um, and so I inherited the audience of the of the guy before me and the people after me. And so they didn't like me very much. And the feeling was mutual. And so I would yell at them uh, during the program. And I was screaming one day about what are you willing to do to create positive change? And I got off the radio and I'm punching walls and I'm over caffeinated like I always am. And uh, the secretary from downstairs comes up and says she has a message from me. And one of the listeners wants to have dinner with me, which is always a red flag in radio yep. anyway. Right. Especially when you're <laughs> yeah. the Martian in the day part. Right. Yeah. It's, like, it's an invitation for a shooting. Um, but but I, so I called the guy up and he says, if you want to know what I'm prepared to do for positive change, let's go out to dinner. So for some reason, and it's funny how these little things can change your life, these decisions yeah. that you make that you almost didn't make, that in your whole life takes a left-hand turn when you do. So I show up to dinner, the guy's about my age, he looks like Dilbert, but he has hair down to his waist, John Lennon glasses, and all I can tell you about this guy, to sum him up in a nutshell, is this is one of the most forward thinkers I've ever met in my life. And it's sort of the curse and bane of his entire existence because sure. he sees so far around the curve that he's always in the wrong place to score off of, off yep. of seeing the future. Yeah. This is a guy who saw apps, right, as the future of, of computer programming. He was writing apps, but he was writing them for the Newton Remember the <laughs> Newton? Yeah. Right. So by the time apps are a big thing for like the iPhone, he's already passed that. He did it with the Newton. Now he's on to the next thing, but he didn't score with the Newton. So this yeah. is a guy who sees so far in the future that he can't even he can't even benefit from it. And in 1994, he said, I want to put your show on the Internet. And I said, what? You know, I'm just, we're just basically getting used to what the heck the Internet is. And it's mostly text. He goes, I'm going to put your show on the Internet. Yeah, and I remember I said, him talking about how emails were going to destroy the workplace. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. what do you even mean? I said, how would you even do that? He goes, well, that's where I come in. I'm going to invent how to do it. And you're going to show people how it's done. Wow. OK, so long story short, everything grew out of that. And um, and and it once again, he was too far ahead of the curve. I went back to commercial radio. Uh, but then down the line, when the opportunity started to be obvious, even to idiots like yours, truly, I'd already been exposed to the idea. So I got involved as a founder in a tech company with a bunch of other people. And one of the things we were going to do was push what at the time was called amateur content. Sure. Now we call it YouTube. We call, right. I mean, everything you can think of is amateur. But back then, I'm out there trying to sell this idea to venture capitalists who think it's the dumbest thing they've ever heard. And the excuse I always got was if anybody was ever any good at anything like this, they'd be paid for it. Um, mm -hmm. So nobody invested. Uh, the, the thing went nowhere. But I put a show together to show people what amateur content would look like. And it was our very earliest few shows of the podcast, not the history one, the one we did before that, the the political one, which was just a variation of my radio show. And when that company went belly up, I took that show 
and continue to do it myself. And that was what the 2005 podcast was. But it all grew out of the idea of this guy I'm having dinner with again tomorrow when he said, we'll put the show on the Internet. And I said, how do you put a show on the Internet? So I yeah. I gotten a head start on that idea because this guy was so forward thinking. That's the short what, answer. What were some of the things that gave you hope that this was going to be the future? Um 2005. I mean, I didn't know about podcasts. I yet. didn't have hope we in 2005. Yeah, <laughs> I, that was before I had hope. Yeah. What was, were, were there's little things along the way where we're like, you know what? This is going to work out. Well, I tell you, I was worried about stupid things looking back on it now. Like, I remember, um, I, I think it was like show five, six, seven in there. Um, and I, Which is you know, just amazing radio, that you had shows five and six and seven. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's yeah, just like yeah, you've yeah. done so much. It's a long much, time ago. We all started somewhere. Yeah, and they all sucked. Shows mm -hmm. five, six, oh, and yeah. seven were not very good. <laughs> um, but I remember, you know, in radio, you have a cough button, as you guys probably know, right? So yeah. you're going to cough or clear your throat. You push the button. You're off air for a second. So we're doing this podcast, and there's no cough button. So I used to just go. I mean, there's nothing written. It's a, I do it the same way today. It's like, it's completely improvised. I get up there and I just start talking. So, I mean, I was like 15 minutes into some long rant and it was going really well. And then I had to cough. And I remember turning to the producer and go, oh man, I said, we got to start over. He goes, what do you mean start over? We're not starting over. You're not going to do 15 good minutes again. And I said, well, what are you proposing we do? He said, well, you just pick up where you left off and we'll scrunch it together. I said, you can't scrunch it together. I said, you ruined my chops. I'll never be able to go back to radio again. He said, he said are you thinking about going back to radio? And that's when I sat down and went, you know, radio kind of sucked yeah, for me yeah. anyway. I mean, I was the wrong guy for radio, right? So I was kind of going, yeah, what am I preserving those chops for? And that's when you started to realize, okay, we got some tools in this podcasting that you can't do in live radio, right? Right. So, so it was all up as it is for all of us, right? A growth process, learning what you can do, what the tools are. And, and in 2005, we don't exactly have, you can't go like research what other people are doing. So we're, no. you know, you find out later that other people were learning these same lessons. We were all learning them sort of at the same time independently. Yes. Um, but yeah, 2000, you know, it's the funny thing is, is if you go listen to the shows in 2005, they sound so horrible now. <laughs> and yet at the time you grade all this stuff on a curve, right? I mean, it's only as good as what the technological expectations at the time were. But God, you know, I sell those old shows and, and it seems like, it seems like oh, yeah. you shouldn't sell those old shows now. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, but for me, though, like I, I first heard. Uh, hardcore history for the first time in 2007. Like uh, I've been, yeah, that's early times. Yeah, I've been listening since that. I You've was... been doing podcasts for 18 years, and your family's still alive. <laughs> that's incredible. That is amazing. <laughs> uh, but you know, like when I listened to him uh, back then, like I'm also, I, I also come from terrestrial radio, from FM radio, uh, and I was working as a janitor at the time, as many FM radio guys were doing. I was going to say, it sounds like a natural coding. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but you know, I but I. You know, found your you know your podcast and started listening to it just constantly, uh, and you know it really did for me. It, it changed the way that I thought like what was possible uh, of what what you could do with this podcast medium. Uh, but you know, in those early days, like your first episode is sixteen minutes long. Yeah, uh, different sounding, huh? Yeah, it's sixteen minutes long. But mm. then now, like you know, your series on World War One was what twenty two hours, something like that. Well, it's funny you say that though because. It, and this is this is something I think we also all sort of independently discovered when we did the political show, the the current events show that we started off with. That was simply a repurposed radio show. Right. So yeah. it was something mm -hmm. that we did on radio. But when we decided to do a history show, 
that was something we designed specifically for podcasting. And I remember thinking it was like this giant whiteboard we had to work with. There are no time limits. There are no mandatory breaks. There's no skeleton at all. You can do anything you want. Yeah. And I was intoxicated by the creative space we had to work with. Because as you know, in radio, you have little creative windows that you mm -hmm. can operate within. Plus mm -hmm. management will also constrain those spaces even farther. Yes. The, the, the first time we designed a podcast as a podcast, it was an exhilarating experience. And that's what I knew I was never going back to radio. Once yeah. I was able to sit there and go, why would you ever give this up? Right. Yeah. Especially when you've done radio, any sort of romance or, or or any of the any of the cachet involved. It's like when I did television as a news reporter. Once you do television, you don't need to go back and do it satisfied whatever it, it deromanticized yeah. it. You know, there's nothing cool about that. What's cool is the creative white space. And that's when yeah. I knew I was, you know, that's when you had like the, the, the tire don't back up here with the spikes. I was never going back to the old media once I got yeah. a taste of, of the creative freedom of this. Did TV people ever try to get you? Did TV people ever come yeah, over and they, they like... They, st they still do. Uh, but, yeah. but, but well, first of all, I have a face made for radio now, which makes it easier you to say... You talk to three of them. Yeah, <laughs> it makes it easier to say no. Um, but at the same time, I mean... You know, I was a bad TV guy. And you know when I knew I was a bad TV guy? I was in news. And, you know, you start off at the low rung and then, you know, you kind of made it when they start using you to shoot the promos. Right. So you're going to shoot a yeah. promo. Now you're one of the guys that they want to advertise. And so all these other colleagues of mine would go shoot the promo. It would take them like five takes. And I remember the promo because it was so painful. All you had to do was you started with a side shot and you turned and you faced the camera <laughs> and you smiled. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was on take like 49 <laughs> before the cameraman, who was a friend of mine, said, this is not going to work, is it? And I said, it's not. It's just not. And and or, or like not, you know, like when I was in the field as a reporter, I was a pretty good reporter on like the, the merits of reporting. But when it came to like looking good, for, I always looked, looked like Columbo, you know, out in the field. Right? My <laughs> secret was sex symbol. The, yeah. He was was just, a, he's a low-key sex Falk. symbol. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, I, yeah. I was not a low-key sex symbol. I was just, I looked rumpled. I looked like I'd been literally in the field, as they say. <laughs> and, and so I was, I, but so in that sense, I was not, I was not the TV guy and, and it was uncomfortable for me, right? What was, what was, what were my hands doing? Right. I did a couple of sizzle reels for some TV companies that wanted to do things. And I had the exact same problem. It was like a bad flashback to my, yeah. to my TV. Like, what am I going to do with my hands? And they were, they would sit there and focus inordinately on, you know, how my pants looked and the crease. And I just, I can't deal with that. I'm a content person. I'm not a, right. not yeah. a visible person. If that yeah, makes sense. And there's a superficiality to television that obviously podcasts can erode, right? We actually, get to tell long stories. You can do long form. You don't have to worry about the next ad break coming up. There's something about it that's very refreshing and very earnest. And I think that's one of the reasons people love your podcast and love podcasts in general, because it that was just watched DeMar Hamlin when he got hurt with the Bills. So this guy almost died in the football God, field, right? So everyone's crying in the stadium, right? And then uh, Buck is like, all right, let's go to break. And everyone is dead serious. And then all of a sudden it's whopper, 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 whopper. Yeah. And yeah. It really brings you out of it. You're like, oh, and nothing. That man's about to die on national television. And that, the, the ads just roll on. Yeah. And the thing is about you, Dan, is I just, you were the one that showed everybody else, I think, the, you know, the whiteboard. 
that we could all use, you know, that we could do whatever we wanted with this medium. I know you definitely showed us yeah. uh, what the hell to do with that's all that. That's a great compliment. I hope that's true. I'd like to think that's true. It, it is, is true. <laughs> it is true for us, at least. We yeah. say come a lot. I think yeah, about 200% more than you do. Yeah. But that's just, that's our oeuvre. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's our life. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, back to history. I want to ask you a couple, a couple of history questions, just your opinions on certain things. Uh, so, like, we talk on this show a lot when we talk about, like, cultural history. Like, we talk about, like, the secret authors of the 20th century. And usually when we talk about them, we talk about them in terms of, like, occult figures like Aleister Crowley or um, L. Ron know, Hubbard. L. Ron yeah. Hubbard, Jack Ron Parsons. Hubbard. <laughs> like, people who truly did, like, they that shaped the century as we know it, uh, but nobody really knows it. Like, do you have any, like, historical figure that you feel is, like, a secret author that shaped the world that no one really gives credit to? You know, I'm sure... Given enough time and thought, I could come up with one. But on the top, off the top of my head, hmm. Well, you know, it's funny because you say, and I, I devolve toward the mean on a lot of these questions, and I apologize in advance. But one of the nonfiction books I read every year, and it horrifies people when I tell them this, uh, but I think it's actually behind me in the in the bookshelf right there, probably is Mein Kampf. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and people say, well, why would you read Mein Kampf? And I said, well, you know, in the same way that you get a chance to really, when you're reading nonfiction as opposed to fiction, you get a chance to know the author a little bit, right? I said, how interesting is it to get a chance to get into the mind of this person who, you know, you don't want to make it sound positive. He made such a difference in the 20th century because it sounds like he made a positive difference, right. but he yep. made an impact would be a better way to put it. And his, his wild evil ideas continue to live on and are mm. on the upswing today. Mm -hmm. So so to get an idea into the mind, I mean, the one thing you get when you read Mein Kampf is you see what a conspiracy nut this guy was, yeah. right? I mean, there's things like that where you, and you turn around. So, so, I mean, when I think about secret authors, most people don't think about Hitler as an author, but yeah. he was an author before he was the chancellor of Germany, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And he wrote a book besides Mein Kampf, the second book, which I have not read, but but, but apparently it's also very instructive into the minds of this guy. So to me, that's getting a little bit closer to understanding one of these people who continues. I mean, you know, I one of the things we mentioned in the First World War show that you brought up is how it's it's an inflection point in the modern world. Right. How the world before the First World War is a different world and the world after the Second War, First World War is a completely different world. And the Second World War is an offshoot of the First World War. Hitler is one of those figures that when you read Mein Kampf, you can see how he's a different figure because of the First World War. Yeah. And so when you say secret authors, I mean, uh, you know, I don't think of Alistair Crowley as having a huge impact, but L. Ron Hubbard did. But the kind of impact L. Ron Hubbard had, even though I'm not comparing it to Nazism at all, is more like the kind that Hitler had in the sense that he comes up with this book. The book itself has an enduring impact. Some movement springs from it. I mean, there's no, I'm trying to think if you could say that Aleister Crowley started well, the movement. He has fans. We connect. Right. Well, LRH stole the structure of Scientology from the OTO. Did he? Basically, so yeah, if he you did. go deep into like the lore of L. Ron Hubbard, he was he was like a pen pal of Aleister Crowley's. When wow. Aleister Crowley was deposed, like once he was like in his waning years, Aleister Crowley's writings also, which is interesting because the autobiography of Aleister Crowley is fascinating as well because you see how yeah. much more is a lark, how much more 
Marvel was like he was uh, entirely aware of the, what he was creating and what he, what he was doing and his like acerbic sense of humor. But LRH is like all of that stuff is ritual magic and ritual ideas that have been stolen from esoteria from across the board. So it's weird that L. Ron Hubbard can be like drawn back to like John D. Yeah. Like that character where he's like they he keeps stealing from the same source. Yeah, it's the same problem that we have that we were talking about earlier. How far back do you go? How much context do you give? Is that because you could just keep going back and back and back with these guys? I think that ability though to go back and and pull from the past, like you just mentioned, I think that's like a superpower. You know, I mean, I yeah. think that's yeah. one of those things where if you can do that well. That's one of those things that you would trade a number of other, you know, it's almost like a D&D character and you roll the various things that you have. Yes. The ability to do that, if you score an 18 with your three six-sided dice on that quality, <laughs> it's going to help you, you know, in the dungeon yes. quest, right? Yeah, it helps me in this context and everywhere else it hurts. Well, look at that. You know what I mean? Everywhere else it makes me a social pariah. We, will, we went from talking about dates to talking about people who never get dates. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, do you have like do you have a favorite like sort of I, I, you mentioned this word earlier hinge like do you have like a, a moment in history that you see as like just this extraordinarily important hinge moment that just everything after it just kind of depends on? Oh, I, you know, my problem is narrowing it down. I mean, the First World War is a great one because that we live in that world now, right? So the, yeah, the yeah. door that swung open there is the, is the room in which we live now. Mm. But there's hinge points all over the place. I love Alexander the Great. I mean, if you don't have Alexander uh, with those crazy conquests of his, it's hard to imagine what happens without it. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of those because you can play history two ways. One way is if Alexander doesn't do it, someone else does. Yeah. Right. The other one is without Alexander, it never happens. And, you know, the, the you know, it's it's the old um, historical argument about the great man theory of history versus the trends and forces one. Right. So yeah. you, the argument is sometimes that you have these unusual figures that push the envelope and then all of us sort of follow in their wake. Or yeah. you have the circumstances in place that create the conditions that somebody just exploits, right? So you create the room and the door and someone walks through it versus nobody could have walked through that door except that particular person. Or as we always say on the podcast, it's probably an interplay between the yeah. two. You might, mm -hmm. Alexander's a very unique figure, but had he existed 200 years before his time, maybe he's not able to do what he did, right? Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's sort of like the Dr. John approach, if I don't do it, someone else will. So do you think it's more on the person or the parameters that that person was raised in? Because I think it's the interplay. I think it's yeah. the interplay. It's just both. Yeah, I think yeah. I think I think it's 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 a magic moment where uh, if you know the same thing with Hitler. I mean, if you have Hitler a hundred years before whatever Hitler, I think of Hitler, I think of magic moments. <laughs> magic, <laughs> magic moments. Okay. Touche, touche. That's right, touche. But I mean, think about this: if Hitler is Hitler a hundred years before the time period he exists in, he's not doing anything because he's not a nobleman. Yeah, right. he's, he's, just, he's an asshole. He's, he's no, just he's a normal some, asshole. He's some yeah. peasant that none of the none of the blue bloods are going to listen to at all in an era where you have to be a blue blood for someone to listen to you, right? So, so I mean, that's what we mean by the confluence of of time and place versus the individual. And it's hard to imagine anybody doing what Hitler did other than Hitler because he's this weird mix of. I mean, he's such a crazy, mixed up screwy, weird character that it's hard to imagine there being a bunch of those dudes walking around, you know, in the mm -hmm. 1930s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the uh, 
uh, I guess, time in person. But, you know, one of those like points that we got stuck on recently, we did a, a serial killer. We did an episode on a serial killer named G. DeRay, uh, who hmm. was active during Joan of Arc's time. He was active during the Hundred Years War. Oh, OK. Uh, and easy some way s- to hide what's going on, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he also because uh, G. DeRay was like her main dude. Well, that was like her like army captain. Well, that's sort of my question is that there are some histor- like historians who specialize in Joan of Arc do not mention G. DeRay at all. Or at least they, he might get a small mention as like a minor general in her army. But historians who focus specifically on this character of G. DeRay, who is actually an, an absolutely real person who, you know, held a high ranking position during the third phase of the Hundred Years War. Thank you. Uh, he um, they portray him as basically Joan of Arc's best friend that during Joan of Arc's first battles, they uh, he saved her life time and time again, uh, and that he's been basically erased from history since. Uh, so do you think that like when historians write about subjects like Joan of Arc, do they do you think that people sort of erase embarrassing connections, embarrassing events in order to sort of feed the narrative that they want? Well, I mean, this is the ancient idea about historians and the problems that they face right at the very beginning, right? Because you can't have a 15,000-page history book. So simply yeah. deciding what to include and what not to include begins the process of pruning and trimming. And and simply by leaving things out, you change the way things are viewed. And it's not necessarily intentional, although it can be, but, but even if you're trying to not have it be something that gives a false impression, simply by having to trim and prune, you're already changing the narrative. In it, and because mm-hmm. of the constraints, I mean, you can't have it. The aliens may have a history book somewhere that has every word of everything that's ever happened, but the rest of us have to prune, right? Yeah. So, so you introduce the deformities in reality right there, and then you get to the point where you're at, which is, do you do it deliberately? Now, we should point out that a lot of historians, because they have to sit there and prune, will say, well, I'm just going to narrow the focus, which makes Mm -hmm. sense, right? I'm going to tell you everything we're going to know about Joan of Arc personally without getting into every friend she ever had. But then this is, and this is what history abhors a vacuum, even in history writing. That's when it opens up the door to saying we've had 5,000 books on Joan of Arc and nobody's mentioned the serial killer best friend. So I'm going to write the book on the serial killer best friend. And then if you're a Joan of Arc fan, you read all the books on Joan of Arc and that gives you more of the various pieces of the tiles that put together, create a mosaic that gives you a better view of the, but no one work. I mean, and, and if you're the work that focuses on Joan of Arc serial killer best friend, you're missing other things because it's not a 15,000 page work. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that's sort of how by by the very nature of the of the limitations in the number of trees out there to make paper pages out of, mm-hmm. you get these deformities. Rise from your grave. Hey, did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. That's one of my favorite things about it. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. 
Uh, personally, I'm in the middle of re-landscaping my yard. I like to do it myself because I called up a landscaper to see how much it costs, and it was absolutely insane. Plus, I love dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt, and I love planting things myself. And fast-growing trees has given me some wonderful plants that I can use. Like I got this uh, Texas sage, it's purple. I've dug up a whole bunch of horrible bushes and shrubs up in front of my window and in front of my house and put some purple Texas sage up there and it's going to thrive and it's going to look real good. And I didn't even have to go to a nursery to buy it. It came to my house. Now, this spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEFT at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code LEFT at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code LEFT. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list. With Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors. It's a waste. Don't waste hours on apps. Besides appetizers, that's the kind of apps I like. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Did you know that empanada is already Spanish? I didn't. Thanks, Babbel. Did you know that burrito is already Spanish. Wow! I just gotta learn all the rest. And eventually, I'm gonna be eating downtown Mexico. Thanks, Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash left. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash left, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash L-E-F-T. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Yeah, we do. Do you love saving money? Oh my God, you bet. Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. That's amazing. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. It's just a better way to watch TV. Get with it, people. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning that your children or significant other can't ruin your queue. Never miss a minute of shows like, oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. You're going to watch it. You're going to love it. You're going to get involved with it. And it's an extravaganza. You're going to love it. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with your seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash left. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash L-E-F-T to get 50% off your first month. It's kind of crazy these kind of like actual just practical things yeah. change the face of the like our entire like b- history, it our reality, the, our entire reality. Yeah. It's so wild to me. Like that's why I like history now. He got me. I was never into this stuff, and then as the years went, he really got me deep into medieval history, yeah. and that whole area fascinates me yeah. because there real there's gaps. There's like all these things you I don't know what they're what we're missing when you're reading about the and it's it's interesting the way that like, even just saying that like of course yeah they have to cut shit out. 
They have to go, they have to print the books. They got to ship the books. Right. The books can't be the book can't be 25 pounds. Well, that's know? that's a great point. And when it comes to getting people interested in history, what do you like what's the what was the string for you because you can look at history through sports lens, through music lens, through political uh, politics lens. There's so many different ways that you can look through history and see of, you know, you can look at racism through the history of sports, so on and so forth. What is a string for you that got you excited about the past and maybe something to help our audience that maybe wants to get into history, like just a place to start because it's, it's, it's history. It's pretty big. You know, I go, I, I, I went through, I go through phases. So, so people will ask me sometimes, you know, why don't you do a show on 17th century India or something? <laughs> and I'll say, because I don't know anything about 17th century India and all the shows that we do were things that I already had some pre-existing knowledge about. And the reason I had pre-existing knowledge about them is because at one time in my life, I was really into that subject. And even though I moved on from it, you know, you retain a certain amount of foundational knowledge that you can then read new books on and sort of build off of, right? I don't have to start mm -hmm. from no knowledge about 17th century India. I can work with things that I was into. So all of the shows that we've done are, are at one time or another, were, were subjects that obsessed me. And if you look at the throughput, I'm ashamed to say almost that a lot of it's military. And this, again, gets back to my mom's sure. theory that I was, you know, how, how does a three or four year old get it so interested in military affairs when he's a basically nonviolent child? I mean, yeah. I, 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 You're I the wasn't only guy, the only kid playing with G.I. Joe's who's just working on diplomacy between that's, states. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, we're not fighting, guys. No, but I mean, I mean, but whatever I was into, like I was into Native Americans for a while. Uh, but but the Native Americans I was into were warrior Native Americans. I wasn't into mm -hmm. the ones who were, you know, uh, uh, uh you know, putting things together with shellfish and, you know, yeah. uh, nice little pottery things. I was interested in warriors, you know, and, and so, I mean, that's the kind of stuff where you end up learning about the pottery and the basket weaving and all that stuff as a <laughs> consequence of being, you know, drawn into the subject from the warrior side of it. And so it, if you think about that as being ground zero of an explosion, then you learn about the other things because of, of being taken in by the subject matter connected to a military thing. Mm -hmm. And then you, you then like we were talking about, like the rest of the story, you have to flesh out for the context and everything else where you want to understand the world that these warriors live in. You want to understand their reality, their values, what they were losing when their culture was being destroyed. So for me, the ground mm -hmm. zero thing, I think, was was the military stuff. And and Dan, I'm sorry you did trigger uh, why we know so much about shovels. Because uh, <laughs> Marcus, when researching the Donner Party, well, okay. Marcus really got into the shovels that it they was, used. And then really, Henry, thankfully, he really edited about five pages. He truly loves wagon manifests. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you guys make me think at the University of Colorado, and I don't know if it's the same as it used to be, but but the grill in the student union is named the Alfred Packer Grill. And it, yeah, Alfred, <laughs> <laughs> it was a cannibal that got, you know, one of those Donner Pass type guys. It was a gang. Well, but on the other hand, you know, that was the Donner Party was kind of what I, that is what got you into history. It was when we did. did our series on the I don't know if you've read this book called The Indifferent Stars Above, which no, is. A, but remember the Donner Party, those people were forced to that. I think Alfred Packer was I think he, he had developed a taste. He was a whole different thing. Yeah, he was a chef. Yeah. You know what I mean? They had to do it to survive. 
But we, I, I did <laughs> learn something important on that uh, episode, like doing that series, because I really did get really heavily into what they took on their wagons, like yeah. what they took with them out west, because I thought that mm -hmm. said so much about Absolutely. the people themselves and, you know, what they expected once they got there and what they didn't expect to happen. Well, that was the first story I remember really reading and then getting more into like older history, medieval history of understanding. I was like, oh, People have been just like us for a long time. Forever. That, like, we've been these same idiots d walking yeah. around for the same time, dealing with the same stuff. Like, all of the stuff that happened with the Donner Party was literally just hubris. Uh, a guy just wanting to get a shortcut. Like, you know, like that thing where it's the very human idea of, like, we're just going to try to make, we're going to try to cut this in half, guys. It's an American dream. We're going to cut this in half. You know yeah. what I mean? And then... Yeah, everybody dies. Yeah. And I'll take it even farther than that. You know, what I've been into for the last couple of years is uh, primates, like looking at uh, at, at, at This apes. is the shit. Yeah, and it's, this is because the shit. Because it's, it's the exact thing you mentioned, but going even to the more base level, right? Watching chimpanzees deal with each other is like watching human beings deal with each other at a much more, you know, mm -hmm. when you, you know, you do the factoring in math and you get to like the common, lowest common denominator. It's mm -hmm. like watching human society at the lowest common denominator. And I've become fascinated in that. And I feel like I actually learned about human societies now studying the lowest common denominator in some of these higher ape groups. Yeah. And mm -hmm. when it all comes together, that really, that really focuses when you get the music. Also, you totally changed my idea when it comes to the meetings, sardines and cigars. That changes everything. For some reason, it's like, yes. oh man, that really changes the temperature of the room. So once you mix it all together, it's just such a beautiful thing. And it helps, you know, just understanding how much does history help you understand the present? It's I don't even understand how other people understand. So, so I have a friend who's a, a, one of these guys who sees the entire world as math. Right. Mm. I mean, everything is factored through his brain. Which is this is Russell Crowe, the actor? Yeah, it, it should be. It should be. So 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 we'll have these discussions and I'm just fascinated by his thought process. And he is by mine because everything in mine is 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 through history, but not like history books. But like I mentioned to you earlier, the context, right? Everything is it's the past episodes of the soap opera. I only understand now based on what happened yesterday, what happened the day before, how we got to here. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't even visualize how other people figure things out without that, just like he can't figure out how other people figure things out without math. And I feel like there must be like 25, 30, 35 different ways of looking at the world. And all of us fall into one of those various groups. And so I talked to other history fans. And, and when we first did the history show, I thought I was doing it for other history major types. That's mm. why the early shows sound so different. I don't really give you any history because I thought the audience was going to be people who already knew the history. It's just all the twists and funky stuff, right? But those people, uh, I went to school with them. We all saw the world through that lens. Mm -hmm. Just like I, I imagine a bunch of mathematicians all see it like my friend. So, so in, in answer to your question, it's the only way I make sense of now. That's the entire way I see the world. Mm -hmm. mm. All right. So I want you. I want you to play a little bit of what if I want. I want to ask you a couple of what ifs. And this is like and one of the and actually I want to ask you one big what if it was one that we really got into uh, that was sort of inspired by your World War One series is the question of Rasputin It's like. 
how important was Rasputin to World War One? If you take the figure of Rasputin out of history completely, does it change World War One or the history of Russia at all? Uh, I'm going to guess, and we'll throw that out there. My, I'm going to guess not, uh, because I think by the time Rasputin is making a real sort of impact on, you know, and his real impact was he had the ear of the czar of Russia yeah. and his wife, right? Uh, I think once Russia, see, this, and this is what the Guns of August is about, Barbara Tuckman's famous book, which basically shows how once the gears of the momentum of the first month of the First World War get going, you're stuck, right? Uh, yeah. uh, I described it once like like pulling the pin on a hand grenade and then trying to decide you're going to put the pin back in there. Once you pull that pin mm. and then lose it somewhere, you're done. Yeah. And I think I think I think once um. Once Russia starts getting, taking the kind of, it's funny because you could make, and this is why history is important too, mm -hmm. you could make certain analogies with Ukraine and Russia today and the war going on there. Um, war creates such a strain on societies that it is a challenge for their political systems not to just collapse. And and what was happening in Russia already before the First World War broke out, I mean, they had a big revolution uh, or a revolutionary attempt that collapsed in 1905, right? The war breaks out in 1914. So they, they already were seeing the cracks in the edifice. And so to then put immense pressure on Russia, the kind of casualties they were taking in the war, the amount of money that was being spent, the dissatisfaction among the public and all that sort of stuff, put in motion an inevitable collapse that was going to happen. And I don't think unless Rasputin could have convinced the czar to end the war. And I don't think Russia was in any position to end the war. And mm -hmm. I think that the allied powers that he was allied with wouldn't have let him end the war. Then I think Russia's stuck anywhere and they're on like a crazy train to collapse. Well, mentioning history and how it kind of conflates with modern era, Rasputin or Lyndon Johnson, bigger dick. Who do you think? Had a bigger <laughs> penis there? Uh, um, Here's the thing. I have a specific view on Lyndon Johnson, and that's that mm. I, I think, you know, and I try to I try to say this about a lot of historical figures. I think he was trying. Right. I mean, I think yeah. if, if you if you I'm, if the, you I'm of the same opinion, Dan, you're you, skirting the question. I, know, <laughs> I'm I, want, I, I need to hear inches here. I think I think Rasputin. Uh, oh, I mean, I think you're, you're talking like actual physical proportions. Is that what we're talking about? Or just, of course he is. He doesn't know. He's not trying sports. You can do history. <laughs> no, no. Or here's my here's my here's my history through dick size. Here's my favorite Lyndon Johnson story. You guys will appreciate this. And I read it in a book about Richard Nixon, who was the next president president after Lyndon Johnson. So I don't know if it's true or not, but I read that when Richard Nixon, who was a Quaker, right? So mm -hmm. he was raised a certain way. When Richard Nixon got into the White House, there's the shower that the president uses in the shower, right? His bathroom shower. Mm -hmm. And Lyndon Johnson had had installed in the shower a shower jet in the middle of the shower that shot <laughs> straight up. Yeah. And, and this so upset Nixon, oh, he had it removed. So, so that, that's, that's my what? My Lyndon Johnson story. Oh my God! People were mad that Obama put a basketball court in. I'd be living with Nixon. That's the perineum wash. That's my taint spray. Yeah. <laughs> and I think of a couple of uh, uh, Bill. Why didn't Bill Clinton put that back in? Right. You back. <laughs> He's a dirty man. I guess the last thing uh, today. 
Uh, Henry wanted to ask you about aliens. I just, I saw you recently put out an essay about the UAP situation. Because I know that you've been trying to get into ufology a little bit. First of all, don't. <laughs> don't come into this. Don't do it. Don't become a ufologist. They're going to take everything away from you. You're going to lose everything. Yeah. Henry's been more upset than ever, even though he's gotten everything he wanted this it's year. It's just <laughs> you. But, but where are you at with it? I saw like now that this disclosure movement, whatever is happening, whatever this this David Grush character talking about, like what, what they have, what they don't have in terms of having an object retrieval program, like they have something. They, they, there's all these like buzzwords. For, like, where are you at now with your understanding of the UFO Phenomena, like why? Why your essay was great. It was yeah, such it was. a good breakout of like this. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is the entire history of ufology. Great. He just does it in a second. You just shit it out, and it's incredible. I don't know how you do it. Uh, but he means that in the best way possible. Yes, of course. I can't believe it. But how do you like? Where are you at now with aliens? Like, is it? it <laughs> that's it. I, I, I don't, I don't have an answer. Um, because I'm not one of those people who tries to. I feel the same way about the Kennedy assassination. I'm not somebody who has a strong opinion either way because I just don't feel like I have the evidence, right? Yeah. Uh, but I appreciate and enjoy examining the potentials. Uh, and I, I am somebody who's, who's. Um, I, I suspect that the math that has been done, that's you know, when you, when you start actually paying attention. And I know you guys probably already know this, so I apologize. But when you start paying attention to how many planets are out there in, in the universe, and this is just assuming one universe, right? Once you start getting into the idea of multiverses and all that, then it starts getting impossible. But once you realize how many planets there are, then it becomes a weird, it almost becomes weirder to start saying that there isn't any more life out there than to say that there is. Now, then you get into things like the great filter, right? This idea mm -hmm. that if, if there, if there is life out in all these places, then what is happening to kill it off before it develops space flight? Those are all fascinating ideas. There's a book I have called, um, I think it's called uh, Where Are They or something. And it's a book. It's a, it's a book basically about the whole question that if they're all out there, where are they? And it where has, are they oh, being? Yeah. It's, yeah, also I, the, but, but, it's also but the ufologist it. whose family has uh, decided to leave them. Where did my <laughs> wife go? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So so but but so the answer to the question is, is that um, I'm very interested in the subject because I always wonder. And this is how a history mind works. Also, that if aliens did come to the planet or if, or if, uh, major U, major world governments were made aware that there were aliens, how on earth would they handle it, right? Yeah. What would be, and here's a better question. What would we, how would we want them to handle it? And that's something that we did in that article you mentioned, which was start to wonder if the government knew about aliens and we wanted the government to act the way we would want them to act, how would we want them to act? And I read this mm -hmm. book um, uh, on UFOs and that was sort of part, you know, what we hinged that article that you mentioned on. And the author tried to take a sort of a skeptical approach. But some of the things that she brought up that would happen to us if aliens were real, I had never thought of. Yeah. And the one that the one that was the most interesting to me was the religious question. Oh, yeah. sure. I mean, yeah. what if aliens know what happens to us after we die? What if they know about is there or isn't there a God? And if there is a God, what is the God? I mean, do they instantly invalidate all of our religions? If they mm -hmm. instantly invalidate all of our religions, well, anybody who's paid any attention to religious wars or just what happens between two religions when they start fighting, I mean, people die. Oh, so you yeah. start saying, okay, if the government knows that exposing us to the fact that there are aliens would expose us to all these things that would destroy the structures upon which our, our world is built, 
Would we want them to not tell us or we would want mm. them to ease us into it? And so for me, without being because I don't have the evidence to say if there are or aren't aliens, but we can have a great amount of fun speculating on if there were, how would that best be released to us? And maybe yeah. you guys remember there was a, a theory years ago when they started making movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and all these things that this might be part of the plan, right? Mm -hmm, that this yeah. was all part of easing us so that we became more comfortable with the idea. We didn't view it like 1950s flying saucer type stuff, yeah. right? No, I, and of but, course, with the War of the Worlds, how that radio play turned out, I think there's reason to be hesitant there if is, you are uh, in power, I suppose. I do believe there is some talk about, I do believe that there is some slow rollout, that they're trying to get us to understand something, and I don't know what it is, but I think the smart religions are just folding it in. The Vatican has a whole ufological department. Like, they apparently, that's one of the people that might have a UFO, they're saying, that they might have something somewhere in the Vatican City, which is the, the best coolest slash scariest thing I can <laughs> possibly imagine. You know what I mean? Like, the Mormons are already folding are aliens. it. Like, they're Catholic. It's, it's just, I feel like that's one one of those things where, like, well, you didn't, didn't L. Ron Hubbard sort of fold it into his? Oh, yeah. Yes. That's yeah, yeah, OT3, man. Yeah. The Xenu yeah. reveal gets you hard each time. <laughs> you, you know it's coming. Yeah. And yes. then, once it gets you, wow. You yeah. really do. Well, Dan, thank you thank so much you, for Dan. joining us. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. You yeah, guys were awesome. very nice to have me on. I hope it lived up to the hype. Yeah. Oh, it was fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I wish I was just thinking about what's the Dan Carlin from 2330. What's that history podcast going to be? And it'll be interesting that we as we live this history together, uh, it'll be fascinating to see how it all goes. What's going to happen when the analog generation dies out and nobody remembers what it was like? Oh, God, uh -huh. there will never be a game of hopscotch again. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, it's a tragedy. And uh, I also want to say uh, to our listeners, if you enjoyed our series on the Manhattan Project, uh, Dan Carlin's uh, episode that was called The Destroyer of Worlds, it's a six-hour episode about what happened next. That's great. Uh, but, like, it starts, and, and I... I enjoyed it immensely. I can't tell Light you how much Light and airy, rainbows and unicorns, just like all our stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening. Dan Carlin, obviously check out Hardcore History. I'm sure many of you have already, but if you haven't, it's a must listen. And uh, Dan, again, from a uh, you're just a podcast legend and you're a hero of ours. So it's an are, honor uh, to be on, guys. Thank you so much. It was an so honor much. to have you. Thank, Thank you. you, senpai. Live <laughs> from your grave. All right, there it was, our conversation with Dan Marcus. You held it together. Thank you. You yeah. did really good. I did better than I did with Kissel with Blaze and Sugar. You did do better. You did <laughs> yeah. do better. Well, you, you didn't did. try to hook me up with Dan. Yeah. So that helped. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for listening. Any good takeaways, uh, Marcus? Any good takeaways? He was wonderful. God, he mean, was wonderful. He's just, he was just so much. Also, he's, he's so handsome. That's the thing with radio guys. Most of them that say, I got a face for radio are actually handsome. Well, and the ones who are like, I'm Studley Steve, look like potatoes. Well, Hi. that's the joke from it's the Wayne's World. Be like, <laughs> Like, handsome Dan. Hey, how are you? All right, everyone. Work Thanks. is hard. Work is hard. Thank you for listening. Hail yourself. Hail Satan. Hail Gein. Congratulations, everyone. Hail me. Go to get fucking listen to hardcore history. Hardcore Educate history. your goddamn yeah. self. Yeah, go check it out. And if uh, I have one more thing, one more plug for hardcore history. If you want to get the first fifty-five episodes, you need to go to his website. Uh, you can buy them there. They are absolutely worth the it's money. Worth they awesome. are audiobooks all on their own. Uh, uh, and just go to the RSS feed, and I think it's something called Glow. It'll give you a little, you know, copy and paste link where you can put it on uh, your podcast app. So yeah, awesome. I, I, I'm 
uh, Ghosts of the Oz Front, start with Countdown to Armageddon. Any of them are all incredible. All right, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O.